Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes and this is videocast episode 81 and podcast episode 71 for the week ending May 6th, 2021. This is Thursday. We'll be doing both this week's uh, podcast videocast on Thursday as well as next week's uh, podcast videocast on Thursday. As I was always taught, better a day early than a minute late. So uh, we're going to get right down to it and start with the media spots for the week. Uh, first uh, was really interesting. Had the opportunity to go on Fox News for the first time, uh, America's Newsroom on Monday, and it was regarding NFTs, uh, non-fungible tokens. So uh, thanks to Ellie Terrett for having me on. She produced the segment. And this is not uh, an area of expertise, but I did uh, uh, obviously dig in pretty deep uh, to uh, provide her a few few minutes for the segment, which you know, as as is usual, is, is shaved down to a, a smaller size. But nonetheless, um, I think this is interesting. Not not from an investment standpoint right now, but just getting ahead of the curve. Um, it, this is probably closer to like talking about the internet in uh, 1995. It was early days, and. Because uh, a lot of people have been asking, I, I do want to spend five minutes on it because I did do uh, good prep for the segment, and maybe it'll be helpful for a lot of people because there is going to be a ton of hype out there. There's going to be a lot of overvalued things that are sold, and uh, they will flush out. But I do think there's going to be derivative value in the long term moving forward, and I'm going to walk you through why uh, with some of the things I shared with with uh, with the producers. So. First of all, what is a non-fungible token? It's just a unit of data that's stored on um, uh, digital digitally. It's a digital asset, and it certifies ownership on the blockchain. So it's not interchangeable. The ownership is unique, and uh, it stores that ownership in a digital ledger. The different types of non-fungible tokens, what, what's popular right now, everyone knows about, is art, photos, uh, you saw the auctions for Beeple, uh, an artist sold 5,000 images for $69.3 million. Then he sold another one for $6.6 million called Crossroad. Uh, then um, Dylan Fields sold CryptoPunk number 7804, which is just a digital picture of like a cartoon head for $7.5 million. So there's obviously froth. When you misprice capital, uh, you, you get mispriced a assets and you get misallocation of capital. Last cycle, it was... Um, Ultra low rates led to the housing bubble. Um, the cycle before that was the tech bubble, uh, and so on and so forth. We can see through history when capital has no cost, it has no value, and it just winds up in all strange pockets uh, or new new markets. So that that's the short term. But we do want to understand this for the long term because if you'd bought Amazon in the last tech bubble, if you'd bought, uh, although it went down 90%, uh, it turned out to be extremely valuable. Uh, same, same as um, Apple, same as you know a number of others that have stood the test of time. So, um, uh, so, so right now it's focused on collectibles and art. In the future, it's gonna be about smart contracts. So for instance, when you go to an event, let's say like I went to the Super Bowl, okay, that will be a digital token. So it would only be whatever it is, the 40,000 people in the stands would have this. And just like you could sell your ticket on eBay right now, uh, in the future, you'll be able to sell your 
digital token and I'm sure they'll have cool art or images on that digital token and where the NFL will benefit is that if you go and sell that historical digital asset that only you own and 45,000 other people that were at the game but no one else can can replicate uh, they'll get a royalty from the smart contract so let's say you flip that ticket in 30 years because it was uh, Tom Brady's last Super Bowl win and you flip that ticket for um, you know $20,000 maybe they'll get a 5% royalty on that so 20 years down the road they make $1,000 and you make 19000 uh, so it's going to be very interesting obviously the big plays are going to be books are going to be digital tokens songs are going to be digital tokens deeds to your home are going to be digital tokens and um, it, you know many collectibles so um, what's also going to evolve over the next few years is you're going to have a public wallet. So right now you meet someone, you're like, oh, they were cool. So you Google them and you see their maybe their Twitter account, maybe their Instagram account, um, maybe their LinkedIn page. And in the future, you're, you're going to be able to see their public wallet. And in that wallet, what are you going to see? You're going to see that they attended the World Series. You're going to see that they attended the Stanley Cup. You're going to see that they've been to like 30 Devils game, New Jersey Devils games in the last you know two years. Um, you're going to see that they went to uh, the SALT conference uh, for, for hedge funds. You're going to see all these different things. And you're going to say, oh, wow, I went to that. Or I, I would have liked to have gone to that. you know, Or they went to uh, Thomas Rhett's country concert or et cetera. So that's going to be your new digital wallet. It's not just going to be like pictures on Instagram. It's going to be like those things that you bought. They're going to say, oh, you know, he bought that Banksy uh, NFT at Christie's for $20 million or, or whatever it was. That's really cool. So all these things that you want to publicly display and all these places you've been and seminars you've attended and books you bought. Oh, wow. Look at the last 10 books he bought. He just bought that book about Bezos and he bought, uh, you know, uh, Warren Buffett's collected essays by Lawrence Cunningham and he bought Charles McKay, uh, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. So that's going to be your public wallet and uh, you're going to be able to show the things that you want. And that's why these tokens are, are going to be assets that people are going to treasure. So, so there is something to this concept. Is it going to be frothy? You know, people selling 5,000 images for $69 million? You bet. You know, maybe th four years down the road, maybe that gets sold for, you know, 750000 Who knows? Maybe it gets sold for 100000 and then 20 years out, it's worth $200 million. Um, so th those are going to be the type of opportunities. Kevin Smith of Clerks fame is releasing his latest movie, Kilroy Was Here, as an NFT. Um, NBA player Spencer Dinwiddle tokenized his contract so others can invest in that contract, uh, which is interesting. That opens up a whole new world. You know, Jack Dorsey sold his first tweet for over two and a half million dollars. LeBron James sold his dunk picture of him dunking for two hundred eight thousand. Uh, so, you know, these are things whether LeBron James dunk card is going to be worth two hundred thousand dollars next year it might only be worth two thousand. And then 20 years from now, it could be worth two million for all we know, or zero. Um, and, and these are the things that we're gonna gonna have to figure out. But these public wallets are gonna become your identity. The tokens are gonna you know, be how you show off your identity, kind of like people show off their Instagram photos and that type of thing. And 99% um, you know, of these collectibles and 
pictures and images that are probably sold in the next few years are going to go to zero. But, you know, a few percent, just like the tech.com companies, will wind up becoming exceptionally valued. So it's just kind of laying the groundwork for how you think about things. The other thing, with all the kind of mania around Bitcoin and uh, some of the coins that are out there, you know, I, I rent, went back and I read Charles McKay, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, and um, particularly focused on tulip mania, because what happened during tulip mania is that um, effectively tulips, you know, were coveted not only by people wanting to get rich, like the modern day version of the people buying Bitcoin on their credit card and, um, you know, borrowing money to buy it in hopes that they can get ahead. Uh, but also wealthy people. It was almost an embarrassment if you didn't have tulips, if you were wealthy. So the rich and the poor of the time were uh, infatuated with tulips. Now, tulips still have residual value. They trade for about a dollar a piece at the local bodega 400 years later. Uh, the problem is, is in the peak of it, one bulb for a tulip traded for the equivalent of, uh, I think, what was 12,000 guilders. It's modern day equivalent. Uh, equivalency to uh, Rembrandt bought a ho house in Amsterdam. So it was the modern day equivalent to about $350,000 in today's terms is where a tulip bulb peaked out during that period. And I think that um, as crazy as, as you know, some people think Bitcoin is and everything else, and it's, it's really tough to value, what's crazy can become a lot crazier. And, and it's, you know, uh, using the template of tulip mania and you never really want to use a template un unless there are three examples of it but let's just say uh you know you don't have people selling their house to buy bitcoin yet so it's not completely crazy you do have people borrowing on credit cards and margin there is a lot of margin in it that can get blown up um but it's not out of the realm of possibility that it could trade up to what tulips traded up to. Uh, you know, what, what intrinsic value did tulips actually have? What intrinsic value does Bitcoin? Now people say, well, it's a ledger, it's this and that. And I think, you know, when it comes to NFTs and most NFTs and smart contracts are traded or, or uh, the infrastructure is Ethereum versus Bitcoin, but Bitcoin has a lot of application. So the point is this, this is not my knitting, this is not my world, but, uh, you know, as much as I'm not inclined to uh, be a part of the craziness, I would say that the craziness can get a lot crazier. So if it is in your inclination, do your homework, because if you do get the one or two percent, you could wind up making a lot of money. And if you wind up with the 98%, you're toast. So as it relates to NFTs, you really want to be careful about the jockey and kind of getting a sense of long-term value. Um, but I do think that even after we, we get the, you know, look, last year it was $250 million market for the whole year. This year it's already over 200 for this year in the first, uh, just over the first quarter. So it is growing and it is very nascent, but it is worth thinking about um, if not doing anything whatsoever. So anyway, thanks to Ellie and thanks to America's Newsroom for having me on uh, as part of that small segment. This is the $4 trillion um, Biden plan, 2.3 trillion infrastructure, 1.8 trillion families plan. This is from the New York Times. Just helps you to visualize, you know, what a small 
piece of the pie buildings uh let's see okay so this is buildings and utilities but that that's a misleading title because it's public schools it's child care it's community colleges high-speed broadband so that's not really infrastructure then you get transportation which is a, a very small piece of the pie roads and bridges and they're putting electric vehicle incentives in there so that's not really uh roads and bridges so you got 115 billion on roads and bridges 20 on uh road safety 85 billion for public transportation i mean maybe that's infrastructure you know that's like new train 80 80 billion for trains uh 25 billion for airports I, you know some of this looks out of whack I, I would think we need a lot more than 25 billion for airports given their status relative to when you fly internationally and the, the things that you see uh in-home care there's 400 billion dollars care for people with disabilities and older adults i don't see how that's infrastructure you could say that we certainly you know a person might want that in the package but uh, it, it doesn't qualify as a long-term investment. Uh, jobs and innovation. So, um, you know, this is a, a piece, education, child and family support, 225 billion for uh, uh, paid family and medical leave, 225 billion for childcare, 200 billion for free universal preschool. So, you know, I, I, okay, free universal preschool, I, that's probably a, 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 an intelligent investment. You know, you get people educated earlier during the brain development. So, you know, that, that's kind of uh, interesting. It's not infrastructure, but it's, it could be a long-term. We could actually get a return on the spending. So that's pretty exciting in some, in some regards. Um, obviously, the uh, child care enables, you know, many more women to come back into the workforce. Uh, I think President Biden said 30 million. I only heard, you know, I usually have like four TVs going, but I think it was 30, 30 million women back into the workforce. That would be enormous um, and uh, great for productivity and everything else. Um, so, so anyway, it just goes to show you some things are durable investments where we're going to get a long-term return. Some things are just spending, which are inflationary and we're not going to get a return. So uh we'll see how this plays out it's not going to be the full full enchilada but but a lot of it's going to get done because uh uh you know uh, the democrats won so they they will push through reconciliation pretty much what what they want to do although today president biden did imply that he wants to see the corporate rate tax rate between 25 and 28 so that's new that means he's willing to meet in the middle he has kind of uh, demonstrated publicly that he's willing to uh, negotiate there's been no evidence of that yet but uh, i think this this may be the case i think there are enough moderate centrist democrats that uh i you know i think they'll come out with something more more in the middle of, of the range and i think the inflation drumbeat is uh, pounding a little bit more uh, as we saw uh, tuesday um treasury secretary uh, Yellen slipped and said that uh, the Fed may have to raise rates with uh, Biden's package, and then she came out after and she says, oh, there's no worry about inflation, inflation whatsoever. Uh, so that's that. Uh, moving right along, Pfizer had great earnings this week, uh, $26 billion in, in sales, 
uh, guidance, so they raised guidance dramatically. I thought what was really interesting about that, obviously everyone knows the vaccine story is exciting, but uh, what he, the CFO said on that call was that Pfizer's going to meet their growth goals even without vaccine sales. And now with it getting, you know, being tested now for two to 12 year olds, I think in Canada and uh, getting approved for, I think it got approved already for 16 year olds. Uh, and the fact that the, the this thing only lasts for uh, the two shots only last for six months, so you're going to have to get another one in six months. Uh, it's going to be a recurring revenue stream. So far, they're the they're the winner. That's the one that people feel most confident about in terms of efficacy and safety. Followed by Moderna, then then followed by J and J, which is back out there. So uh, so the future is bright. So so a lot of the vaccine stocks got smashed today because President Biden was saying, yeah, we'll we'll go along. We'll just give you all of our intellectual property on the vaccines. Don't worry about it. Uh, I don't think that gets done, although the stocks, you know, many of the stocks seem to fear that it was legit. Uh, here's why I think when all is said and done, my guess is this is going to be a four or five week shakedown where, you know, these stocks may go sideways. You know, they, they've had huge gains in the last handful of weeks. So um, pricing in a lot of good. My guess is they grind sideways while this gets worked out. But if you recall, Pfizer took zero dollars from uh, President Trump's Operation Warp Speed to develop the vaccines in record time. And no one really understood, like, why didn't they take the money? I mean, they were just handing out billions of dollars to these companies, just get us a vaccine, get us a vaccine, and they didn't take a cent. So my sense is, even if the administration makes a mistake and says, we'll just give away our intellectual property to everybody uh, for free, then um, I, I don't think Pfizer's gonna have to go along with it because, you know, what is the is the federal government going to come and confiscate their computers and say uh, we're we're mailing these to China? I mean, it it makes zero sense. I they have zero claim unless we live in a communist government to steal uh, Pfizer's property, particularly because they don't have any investment in it. Had they uh, taken the money, the warp speed money, I think they would be vulnerable. And maybe there will be if this actually goes through, which I don't think it will. I do think what you're going to see is uh, they're going to miraculously find 500 million vaccines and ship them over to these countries that need them for free. Uh, that's going to happen. But they aren't going to ship the code over. That's for damn sure if they have anything to say about it. And if they don't have anything to say about it, let's say the administration's successful. It doesn't matter. We're just taking it or you're going to, you know, who? I, well, I guess the only way they could do it is give us the code or you're going to jail, which is just bananas. I mean, I thought we lived in a free country, but let's just assume we don't. And... Um, uh, they wind up taking that code. Well, guess what? Next time we have one of these and they say, hey, you got to make us a vaccine, who's going to step up? And the answer is no one. So it, you got to think a little bit longer term here. I do like, you know, I, I, you know, President Biden's been in the politics game for a long time. The game is what you make a big ask and then what you actually want doesn't seem like a lot. My guess is the big ask is give us your code. Uh, and the uh, the result is, uh, well, we're not going to give you our code, but here's 500 million vaccines free of charge. And, you know, everyone's happy. The world gets vaccinated and, and we move on. And Pfizer and uh, Moderna retain their proprietary mRNA uh, code, which will be really valuable in treating all types of diseases moving forward, including possibly cancer. So, um, 
so I think this is a short-term thing, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to be resolved in a day or two days. It might take a few weeks, and that's why the stocks may look a little soft, with Pfizer being the softest, because they don't have any obligation to anyone. They didn't take the money. So um, anyway, the point of the uh, on the call, besides the incredible guidance, besides um, is they talked about just on their other businesses, their drugs, their new drugs, their pipelines, assuming no breakthroughs uh, without uh, the vaccine issue, they expect to grow at 6% a year on revenue for the next five years. If they do get some hits, it could bump up to 12, plus the vaccine, it could go way, way better than, than they're leading on. And that's the kind of company you want to be involved in, especially when they're trading at such a low multiple with the dividend to wait. So if you do get, you know, we have had a huge run in the last, um, you know, eight weeks since we put it out in February and March that we were getting long with size. Um, I think that um, if you do get a pullback here in the next few weeks, it's it's an incredible opportunity uh, for an intermediate term own ownership uh, of this company. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to get resolved where Biden just says, you know, on Wednesday, like, oh, I was just kidding. Uh, don't worry about it. Send us, a, you know, 10 million vaccines and we'll call it even. Uh, it's going to be a back and forth, particularly, you know, with com countries like India f flaring up with, you know, just tons of cases. Uh, we obviously it's in every developed country's interest to get every country in the world vaccinated as soon as possible. I think how you go about it, and by the way, if they gave them the code, it wouldn't help anyway, because um, uh, I think there was something that they would need that they don't have. I think the ability to make it, or it would take them basically two or three years once once they had the code to actually get it in production. So what they're saying is, you know, we can produce more and they'll, they'll come to that conclusion after, uh, uh, when they exhaust all other possibilities, they'll actually come to the right answer. So that's the story there. Uh, more on uh, uh, inflation, Clorox is raising prices. Uh, and what's interesting is the stock sold off after earnings. I said, uh, I think it was in last week's call that all these sell-offs were huge opportunities like Kimberly Clark. It was, I think I called it manna from heaven. Well, they've all rebounded. Clorox is starting to rebound. They're selling, they're now saying they're selling many more cleaning products than they were pre-pandemic, which is pretty exciting to see. Obviously during the pandemic, they spiked because everyone wanted to bleach everything under the sun. Foil maker Reynolds, that was a spinoff. Uh, um, uh, I forget from who, maybe PNG. I I don't, uh, let's see, who are they spun out from? Anyway, the point is they're planning three rounds of price hikes in 2021. So this inflation is not transient. And now we're seeing an enormous amount of positive sentiment and press on banks. Uh, we were pounding the table happy on banks, you know, la last year, um, you know, when Wells was in the low 20s and everyone was making fun of banks saying that um, they're irrelevant and uh, they have competition and who needs, you know, pens with chains on them uh, at, at the banks and, and all this nonsense. And now they're all up 100, 150 percent. And uh, and now you're just seeing this drumbeat of bullishness. Uh, bank stocks continue to gain. Why Wall Street says the rally still has steam. And uh, this is Carlton English, uh, who, by the way, had it right way back when as well. She was one of the few uh, journalists stepping out and, um, you know, showing 
a balanced view that uh, there could be an opportunity in banks back in July and June, et cetera. But, um, you know, all the analysts are now coming out. No, no one wanted anything to do with it. And now everyone wants to, to get something to do with it. Uh, 10 Reasons to Buy Banks came out today. This is from uh, Jennifer Demba um, from Truist. That's one of those regional bank merger things. Um, okay, so credit issues have been minimal and manageable. We were talking about that last summer that they were over-reserved. They, they uh, took the reserves on the assumption of 20% unemployment. We are at you know less than six. Uh, loan growth should improve the back half of the year. Totally agree with that, particularly uh, commercial and industrial. Net interest margins are expected to expand as banks will soon be able to deploy their deposit bases into higher yield loans. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, bank stocks can be used as a call option on rising interest rates. Okay, for those of you who haven't figured that out yet, uh, uh, you know, okay, time to wake from sleepy time. Uh, all right, uh, low interest rates and continued nesting as people work from home will mean mortgage revenue stays strong over the next two years. I, it, I think the mortgage revenue is going to stay strong because of demographics. You know, 72 million millennials, average age 30. Uh, COVID was the catalyst, but it was starting in the years before. And this is going to not just be two-year thing related to COVID and working from home. No one really, that's that's transient, <laughs> to use a famous word. Uh, the real story is secular. Uh, millions of people starting uh, family formation and housing formation, and that's going to be a sustainable trend and banks are going to benefit. Um Share repurchases should accelerate after a pause in 2020. That's going to start in aggressively after June. And then uh, opportunities for mergers and bank valuations haven't gotten too high. So, uh, yeah, this is this is certainly correct. These 10 points are correct. They're late as hell, though. I mean, the, the group's up 100 to 150 percent. That's the bad news. The good news is uh, we're just at the beginning of the brand new cycle. And we're going to cover that in this article. So while they've run a lot... Um, uh, you know, the time to get out of banks, as we covered in recent weeks, is the next time the yield curve inverts. The last time it inverted was in summer of 2019. That's the peak of the cycle. That's when credit begins to get choked off. We're at the steepest we've been, the two to t two year yield to 10 year ratio since uh, 2011. I think, yeah, 2011. Um, the ratio of the two-year yield to the 10-year yield is the steepest since two, in, in a, about a decade. Um, so we're nowhere near a new inversion. That doesn't mean we won't get 10 to 20% corrections in the next uh, you know, year, two years uh, in this sector and in stocks in the sector that have run up huge. I think the fact the fact that there is so much bullishness coming out all at once in the last couple of weeks on banks uh, you know, makes me want to trim a little bit and, and buy on, on weakness for the long term, long term meaning the next three to five years until the uh, yield curve inverts. I think that there's a lot more to go for these banks. But since they've gone straight up for the last six months uh, and everyone's getting bullish, that was very that. And it's all largely the same people who were pound the table negative at the bottom now they want all want them up 100 to 150 percent tells me that you always have to flush out the late money the weak sisters they got to pound them and now's the time because all the late money is chasing it and now they've got to they've got to pull the rug out smoke those people 
And then after a 10 to 20% uh, washout for the late money that will puke out because they have no profit in the stocks, that's when you can add to those positions uh, that you've trimmed uh, and, uh, and play for the next three to five years until the next inversion. While they're up 100 plus percent, I think many of them are still gonna probably go up another 100% over the next three to five years uh, of the cycle or, or 70 or 80%, but, um, um, but that's still a huge opportunity, you know, another 80, 100% over three years. The key is, do you wanna buy them here or do you wanna buy them, you know, 10 or 20% cheaper? Uh, and I think just, just ex experientially with so much new money going in, uh, I've just seen this over and over again and the sentiment being uniformly bullish on something that it was uniformly bearish. Um, my, my, my just spidey sense tells me that um, I, I think they got to punish the late money a little bit uh, in, you know, sometime in the next few months. It, it could keep powering higher and that would be exciting and great. But uh, I think the latter is probably going to be the case. The other thing that kind of leads me to that conclusion is uh, when you see, um, like, for instance, the ARC fund, which is all tech, high flying stuff is down 10% this week. I think about down, uh, let's see, what was it? Once, you know, 30% for the year, like 40, it looks like what, what was this? 155 to 110. So 40% off its February peak. I mean, that's, that's a lot of, you know, that's, that's pretty serious. So um, you're seeing all of these uh, high multiple, low profit. If you recall, I said watch out for these big promises, big on promises, small on profits companies. Well, every single one of them is getting taken out behind the shed and shot uh, in the last week and uh, certainly the last few months. And um, and now people are getting certain that those are not the stocks to be in, which kind of makes me think that it, we're not far away from uh maybe finding a little footing for some of them but you know it's tough because it's like if you've got a stock trading at 100 times sales or 50 times sales I, i'm sorry let, let's call it, uh, it, it let, let's say the the good ones they even have earnings let's say they're trading at you know 80 or 100 times earnings uh and uh you know 10 or 20 or 30 times sales um and they've fallen 40 percent Okay, but they're still trading at, you know, 80 times earnings and 20 times sales. Well, is that the bottom? I mean, how do you mentally say 200 times earnings was too expensive, but 80 times earnings is just right? Or, um, you know, 20 times sales was crazy, but 10 times sales is reasonable. You know, I, I don't know what that magic uh, magic metric is when these things are. And, and that's why uh, I'm less inclined to play that game. I know my knitting. I know where I excel. I know where I win. This this is not the area because I, I just can't sleep at night with that kind of multiple, even if it looks, quote unquote, technically like it should uh um, you know, bounce, I, I, you know, it's not one of those things where I'd say, well, I'll buy it at 80 times. And if it goes to 40 times, I'll buy more. Well, what if it goes to 10 times? So for me, that's not the world I want to play. However, from a sentiment standpoint and a kind of gut standpoint, 
there's been so much taken to the woodshed right now. I think all you would need is some in indication that you know growth was going to be slightly slower than everyone is anticipating with now all these Johnny come latelys into the recovery trade uh, that that we were strong on last year. Um, something that would say growth is going to be a little slower, whether it's um, if I had to guess, you know, maybe it's something with China and Taiwan, something geopolitical or some variant. Uh, start, anyway, it, it would be something where people would say, oh, wait a second, maybe this is not going to be so so fast. Then, um, you know, yields would stay somewhat compressed in the short term and you'd get a, a bid again intact but i i think that bid would be more discerning i i, I don't know that it would be in these hundred you know 30 times sales stocks i think it would maybe be in the two to five times sales you know trading at uh you know 30 times with 25 percent earnings growth would probably be the stocks that get the bid more so than than these that you know it's just very tough to quantify a floor uh but Given this type of uniformity now, go into banks, go into energy, uh, when that was what should have been the story last year, which is when we were talking about it, uh, and now everyone's you know running for the exits like crazy on tech, um, you know my inclination is to start to sniff around, uh, and um, you know we've talked about it in the last week, sniff around, and it's not a wholesale call. Because I think there's more pain to be had, but there there are some opportunities that we're seeing and starting to take advantage of. So, um, okay, so that was that on banks, and um, you know th that's to the analyst that Carlton's covering. She had it right last summer. She was she was innovative in her thinking, talking about Cecil and all the other things that we were pounding the table on. So, kudos. Uh, this is interesting. Demand for electrical vehicles is growing. Why that doesn't pose a threat to oil? This is something that we've tried to talk about repeatedly for the last few months. Um, you know, a couple of things you're seeing. Number one is <laughs> the metals pricing. I mean, the copper pricing, uh, the rare earths, lithium, cobalt for the batteries. You know, uh, <laughs> I guess to use the cliche, this stuff doesn't grow on trees. No matter how green the trees are, um, one, most of this stuff has to be mined, and, and it's mined with fossil fuels. Two, um it's limited so i think there's a huge going to be a huge place for evs uh but it it's it's uh it's not going to displace the growing demand from the growing population for this and the other thing is uh it's showing here uh, uh ihs market shows that last year light plug-in and fuel cell activities as well as electric city buses and two-wheelers collectively displaced about 370,000 barrels per day of global consumption. Uh, by 2025, that may grow to $1.5 million per barrel, equivalent to about 1.4% of the projected level of total world oil demand. For now, analysts aren't very concerned as car manufacturers roll out a large number of EVUs by 2025 invariably. Some of those can make market penetration and continue to eat into traditional market sales for, uh, for liquid fuels, but that's a largely a developed economy or rich country issue at this point, says Dean Foreman at American Petroleum Institute. 
Uh, yeah, and where's the population growth? It's not in the developed world anyway. So the growth of combustible vehicles is all in the developing world, as is the population growth. Uh, so what you're losing in developed world EVs, you're gaining in sheer population, combustible energy in the developing world. And we're going to see the limitations of mass production of EVs uh, based on rare earths and um and mining and metals and pricing, you know, that, that the economics of the whole thing. I also read an article that one in every five people that have bought an EV have switched back to combustible engines because they found them inconvenient and, and that. Now that may change with $180 billion of charging stations if President Biden gets his way. Um, uh, but again, that's a long runway and by the time you know, even if you get to 3% uh, of total oil consumption displaced by EVs by call it 2030 or even 5%, the overall demand will have probably grown by 10%. The other thing that they're seeing is that, um, so lithium demand is expected to increase 300% over the next five years. <clears throat> but what they're also seeing is um, massive amounts of demand for petrochemicals. Uh, da, 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 let's see, and natural gas, one to three percent. Okay, a lot more oil has been going into petrochemicals, which are derived from oil or natural gas and can be used to make disposable syringes for COVID, of all things, and personal protective equipment like those in high need uh, during the pandemic. I mean, everything, computers, devices, all the things that are driving the growth of the economy uh, moving forward are all uh, manufactured by petrochemicals. So the best thing we can do as society is try to move as fast as humanly possible on renewables to offset the growing demand for petrochemicals, for oil, for population growth, for all of these things. So like ideally you would keep the demand at 105 million barrels a day even as the population grows 10 years out and EVs maybe take up 10% of the overall production. And keep in mind, there's been no major investment for the last five years, capital's not been available, producers are using uh, capital discipline, the money that they do make and the cash flow that they're making now above 50 and 55 at their break-even levels is now being used to buy back stocks, pay down debt, and reward their shareholders with dividends. So uh, so this sector is very interesting, and we're going to talk about, you know, these, these were a big push by us last year. They're all up over 100%. Now what? Just like banks, we talked about when it will be time to sell those, when the yield curve inverts years down the road, when to sell uh, energy stocks after they're up so much. And uh, a preview is it's a lot later because um, they're aggressively under-owned, number one. And number two, we'll give you a metric that we're looking at for several years down the road when we would start to uh, aggressively head for the exits. We're always trimming as companies and sectors make up too large a portion of the portfolio because of the internal profits from doubling and more than doubling. We shave some off. That's just portfolio management. That's not a, an outlook management. It's it's portfolio management. Um, but uh, the secular theme, we want to hold the bulk, you know, for multiple years in, in both cases. Uh, this, these are some of the things that I think could could potentially lead to a bid in these stocks that are getting taken out behind back and shot. 
uh, i.e. some of the tech, certainly some of the Chinese stocks uh, we've been talking about, the highest quality. We like BABA. We added more to that this week. Um, uh, our most aggressive ad this week, though, was Novartis, which we've talked about for the last eight weeks. In that group that we put out in late February, early March, we said to buy utilities, staples, and Big Pharma. Our two picks in Big Pharma were um, Pfizer, which went from 33 to 41. Now it's taking a little breather. And Novartis. Novartis has been the laggard. The utilities were up 20%. AEP, Dominion, we think those have more legs here. Uh, they rested a little bit. I think they're going to get bit up again over the summer. Same thing with Staples. We bought, uh, they had a huge run, and then they pulled back. We added aggressively on that. And now um, Novartis was our most aggressive ad this week. So um, that's Big Pharma. And, and I think it's going to be something that no one's expecting that um, kind of – and it, there's a seasonal period where there's a tendency to get more defensive over the summer where big pharma uh, utilities and staples could, could benefit once again. Um, Washington shies away from the open declaration to defend Taiwan. That is a pro-China stance um, uh, and, it, and it kind of shift in policy, whereas prior to this administration, we would step up and defend – Taiwan from Japan, from, sorry, Taiwan from China. Now uh, this is saying that, you know, we're kind of neutral, which is very pro-China. Uh, the second thing is uh, Biden team likely to proceed with Trump-China investment ban. Well, th this, uh, this was priced in um, for those companies that are related to the military. There was like six of them, um, um, China Mobile, uh, China National Oil Company, um, you know, and a few others. The banks are pushing hard for the Biden administration not to do this. This is a huge source of income. And my guess is what's priced in based on how China's stocks have acted for the last few months, they've been weak, which is why we've been starting to nibble um, pretty nicely the last week and two weeks. Uh I think a lot of that bad news has been priced in, and if you get anything good, which this is signaling that we're not going to, that we're neutral, whereas we used to back Taiwan, this is kind of a an olive branch to China in a way, um, you know, whether you agree with it or not, um, as it relates to China stocks. This is a, a stock market podcast video cast. I think that this is all priced in. The ban is already done. So if he reverses that, these things could slingshot. And that's why we've been you know, very carefully, only the highest quality things that are that are down, starting to build positions nicely in, in a handful of the, the Melco Crowns, uh, LVS that has the China exposure, uh, BABA, and then a, a handful of lower quality stuff like IQ, Huya that are just beaten to death. And it's like, you know... If anything changes, they're going to just spring load to the upside. So um, I think a lot of this news is priced in. There might be some more pain first, and we'll add more. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see. That's an important thing to watch. Now let's talk about the wall of worry in the U.S. Hedge funds had become extreme sellers of stocks uh, even before Yellen's interest rate remarks. So they've kind of been a contrary indicator, and they haven't been this pessimistic since before the election. That was the best time 
uh, in a long time to buy stocks. The only other time to buy stocks that was quite as good was when I put out my MarketWatch article on, I think it was March 19th of 2020. The market bottomed four day, three or four days later. Uh, that's when they were at their their uh, greatest short. They're, they're shorter than that right now. And why is that? Because they were levered long tech and they got their, you know, butts handed to them in the last two months uh, as tech has rolled over and high-flying tech has gotten smoked. So um, so that's usually nearing an inflection as it was in March, as it was before the election, as it was in 2016, that big drawdown, and as it was in two, late 2008, early 2009. So they're really uh, hedge fund client four-week average uh, net flows uh, are huge. And that also has something to do with Archegos. I think a lot of them were tied up in the same stocks. The Taiwan, sem you know, the semis have just, again, been smashed because of, uh, partially because of Archegos, partially because of the tech meltdown. So we've been talking about this for months. It's played out. Uh, the question is, is how close are we to the end of the pain? Uh, we're getting close to a crescendo of kind of fear and hatred of tech. Uh, you know, maybe there's a few more weeks of this, but I think some highest quality names you can start to get exposure to and take the other side of the trade if you have a long-term view. And you never put a position on all at once. You put a starter position on if it moves against, so you can build up over time as it moves against you and then as it moves for you. And it's the same when you get out of the stocks, you scale out, you know, at 100, bid at 100, 150, 200, you know, that type of thing. So, um, I like this in terms of the wall of worry. That's not to say we won't get some, you know, volatility over the summer, uh, but it is to say that um, it would be very easy to see things that have sold off start to rip because why these guys have already been pushed out of it, uh, you know, taken behind the barn and shot. So what's left after their toast is is these stocks lying there and you can just go pick them up at, at very low prices and over the next six to eight months and then lay them off a year from now when everyone's chasing back uh, after them when they're up 100%. And they put out the article, 10 Reasons Why to Buy Tech After It's at New Highs. So um, so that's kind of, I saw this as a very positive article. This is uh, Steve Goldstein over at MarketWatch. Um, I think the intent of the article was like, if they're short, you better watch out. But I, I think it's the opposite, you know, based on just looking back at when they were short right before the election, March of 2020, 2016 was the bottom and, and late 2008, 2009. And again, there may be a few weeks off here, so it could get worse before it gets better. But I like to see that type of thing. This also thing, you know, given a hard time about ARC getting smoked, look, they had an incredible run uh, last year. They could probably lose 50% and still be, you know, in good shape. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I, I think with sentiment turning on these, it, it, you know, maybe days, it may be weeks until some of these names start to get bid. And then um, everyone who's so pessimistic on them, uh, at the wrong, at the exact wrong time, everyone loved it. You know, 40% ago. Now it's down 40%. See, we knew it was going to blow up. So you know, this is kind of. I'm not saying that I'd be a buyer per se, but I I think sentiment is getting close 
to the point where some of these names really start to bounce. Um, okay, Fed warns about potential for significant declines in asset prices as valuation declines. Thank you, Captain Obvious. So this was um, uh, Fed Governor Lael Brainerd. Um, you know, this sounds like the irrational exuberance uh, manifesto from 1995. The market continued to run. This is a new business cycle. I, you know, I think she's probably speaking to some of the SPACs and some of the tech stocks that are down 40 and 50% in the last eight weeks. Well, it's already yesterday's news, so the warning's a little bit late. Um, uh, but I like this type of pessimism coming in because um, it's just it's just generally helpful. Uh, and I also like the fact that as much as we've rallied that the fear and greed has been neutral for like weeks and weeks and weeks. We haven't gotten to an exuberance. And um, so what, what we're basically seeing is what we talked about in the beginning of the year, which is don't pay attention to the indices. Look for the rallies under the surface. So while the general indices just kind of grind and it's trading places from the NASDAQ to the Dow to the S&P to the Russell and back and forth and then the sectors underneath, it's tech in early days. Then it was, you know, well, it started the year uh, financials and energy. Then they took a break. Then utilities and staples. Now, now we think pharma. And you're just seeing this kind of grinding and, and the, the indices are just grinding along, tech's getting slaughtered. You wouldn't know it from looking at the general, you know, from the S&P 500, but there's just bloodshed under the surface. Um, but that's, that's the exact scenario that we were talking about 2013 and 2017, which were our templates for this year after huge dislocations like we had last year, like we had in 2016 and like we had in 2011-12. Uh, you had these grind up years, these constant rotations ticking up, ticking up, ticking up in the indices, and then massive moves under the surface in 13 and 17. And I think it's a similar type of environment. And so far that's held true. You know, our uh, target at the beginning of the year was mid-teens. You know, we're, we're already double digits. So, you know, let's say it's 4% or 5% between now and the end of the year. That means there's a lot of grinding in the indices. But under the surface, there's opportunity like like um, has has just been tremendous. So um, um, that's that. All right, moving right along. It's interesting. You know, the Dow's up big, finished new highs today. Last week's article, if you recall, we were pointing out that um, some of these Dow indicators we're looking near buy points. And that was, you know, despite the fact that the index was elevated, um, you know, we, we looked at the Swenlin uh, trading oscillator, vo volume oscillator for the Dow. We said this is closer to a bottom than a top. Uh, same thing with D Dow Jones Industrial Bullish Percent. You know, the, the index was near a high and yet these were closer to a low where you'd wanna be a buyer. So. Um, and we saw that. So that's exactly what happened. We're going to look at a bunch of these indexes, indices. If you're on the podcast, you'll probably want to go to hedgefundtips.com. Click on the um, video cast, the YouTube video. We're now at minute 50. That's where you'll want to see all the charts. Minute 60 is where you're going to get cut off uh, probably. And then you can watch the last few minutes on uh, on the video cast. But uh but that's that. So, so we had pointed these out last week. Let's see what's going on this week. We've got a lot of things. 
The one thing that's happened, despite making new highs in the Dow with the NASDAQ up, we're seeing the 10-day moving average of the equity put call ratio start to creep up, um, you know, close to levels, obviously with the exception of the pandemic, you know, it, it's getting up to levels that are closer to a bottom, but we haven't corrected that much. So there's a lot of fear in the market, uh, which is really interesting considering we're, we're all the way up here. And that's, you know, so again, I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to the indices. You've got to look to what's cheap now. That's the name of the game. Where are the rallies going to, where have the rallies been under the surface? Where are the rallies going to be under the surface? So let's look at a few more of these. This is the NASDAQ advanced decline ratio. Again, this is this is nearing points where you inflect. That's why kind of this pessimism about ARC, uh, we might be right towards the turn. And she's going to speak, by the way, on CNBC tomorrow at... Um, actually, I'm not going to promote this because I'm supposed to be on Fox Business tomorrow at the same time. So you're definitely going to want to watch Fox Business, not the other uh, interview. But uh, she has an interview tomorrow uh, late in the day on a different station. Uh, so watch Fox Business with Liz Claim, and I'm scheduled to be on. We'll, we'll, we'll see if, um, how that works out. But um, so that's that. And then same thing here with this uh, NASDAQ declining issues tricks. Again, this, this elevated level here, that's closer to bottoms, elevated bottoms, elevated bottoms, elevated, you know, so I, I, I think there's going to be a bid here soon uh, for some of those. And we started to needle in very selectively uh, some, on some names, you know, a little bit more than selectively, but not certainly not wholesale on the group, uh, but but you know enough size on on certain names uh nasdaq up down on balance volume oscillator again this is getting to the levels where you buy getting to the levels where you buy getting to the levels where you buy and i think why you're not seeing a huge pullback in the indices is there's just too much liquidity a hundred billion dollars a month of bond uh buying that money is getting forced out on the risk curve uh will taper you know later in the year but for now it's like it, it, the market just struggles what's been you know the hedge funds have been selling companies been buying back uh and that liquidity has been there <clears throat> same thing with this burke high lows on the new york stock exchange this is you know just starting up just starting up just starting up not rolling over uh so you know it's not pound the table let's get bullish on the indices but it is pound the table uh, find the things under the surface that have sold off that are high quality and represent value uh, that you can take a, you know, 9 to 12, 9 to 18 month view and make really good money like we've done with multiple other sector rotations in the last 12 months. Um, all right. What, what other uh, indices? Here's another one. Uh, NASDAQ intermediate term volume momentum oscillator. Same thing. Closer to where you buy, closer to where you buy, not rolling over. It already did that. And that was the under the under the surface bloodshed that we talked about um, in the high multiple, you know, big on promise, small on profit companies. And that could change uh, if there's any indication that, uh, you know, worries show up geopolitical virus, any of that stuff, and they're going to get bid very, very quickly. Um, okay, PMO by Dow Jones. Again, this is, again, closer to the bottom. Um, the percent that were on PMO crossover buy signals was towards the bottom last week when we talked about it. Now it's starting to creep up again. So there, there's opportunity, despite the fact we're elevated in the, in the general indices. Um, 
bottom fissure indicator yeah again this is towards the bottom versus it could go lower but again these are all pointing to it's not again it's not like okay you know just by the indices but it's saying there's enough strength in the general market if you're picking the right spots you can make money even if the in indices stall there's lots of liquidity the indices stall but under the surface just monster opportunity uh in a, a print consumer staple model same thing um dow swenland trading oscillator volume again this is for the dow it's towards the bottom it's just turning up just turning up and that's a common theme that we're seeing nasdaq mcclellan's summation index this is closer to a buy signal that's where you generally buy with a few exceptions for mass dislocations not to say we won't even get a mass dislocation that's possible but i think with this amount of liquidity this is probably a you know nearing a buy signal for that group um okay and let's take a look here yeah similar stuff i mean the skew is still elevated people are buying a lot of uh, two standard deviation move tail risk insurance uh pricing is high demand is high everyone looking for a correction you know is is there's a tendency not to get it when everyone's looking for it so i i've heard more speakers come out and call for 10 to 20 percent corrections over the summer in the last week than i've heard in a long time it's not out of the question but i think we're going to be more in that three to five percent range that we talked about at the beginning of the year we've already had two or three i'd said we'd probably get a handful or more of those type of corrections so yeah we could certainly get a few more of those over the summer um Okay, investors should purchase stocks like they purchase groceries, not like they purchase perfume. A quote from Benjamin Graham I figured I'd throw in there. Um, you know, if you remember from our article a few weeks ago, we used um, Justin Bieber's song, I get my peaches from Georgia, I get my weed from California. And I said, if you keep buying stocks that are big on promises and small on profits, people are gonna ask you if you get your weed from California. And that's certainly what's happened in the last handful of weeks. So um, now this week's article was the clash, should I stay or should I go? And this the theme of this week was conflicting messages out of the Fed. On Monday, Jerome Powell said that he wanted to reduce inequality through Fed policy, the implicit message that he's gonna run the economy as hot as hell until everyone who wants a job can get a job and they're hired. Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Yellen came out and said, uh, caused an intraday swoon when she said that President Biden's $4.3 trillion package uh, could cause the Fed to have to raise rates. She quickly backtracked that night to the Wall Street Journal saying, I don't anticipate inflation is gonna be a problem. Uh, I'm glad she cleared that up because for a minute there, I was starting to worry that when you spend 50 per, close to 50% of GDP in 12 months, uh, 12 to 18 month period, I, I might have to start to worry about my purchasing power, but since she cleared it up, I'm perfectly comfortable now. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so then Fed Cl uh, Chair Clarita came out to just double confirm that, uh, Chair Powell, Powell um, not Chair Powell, uh, Secretary Yellen um, was uh, misspoke 
And he said, the Fed is a long way from our goals. Hence, we're, what's hot now is going to run a lot hotter. And then Fed Rosengren came out to assure the market that Yellen's accidental worry was unfounded and, quote, higher inflation will be as temporary as last year's toilet paper shortage. Now, I don't know about you, but the last two words I want coming out of uh, a, a Fed Federal Reserve official is the word toilet paper as it relates to anything, particularly currency or purchasing power. So the toilet paper analogy might have been the tell. And um, long story short, um, thou doth protesteth too much, methinks. Leaving that aside, uh, the Clash song, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, should I stay or should I go? If I go, there will be trouble if they taper too so soon. And if I stay, it will be double. You'll be paying $10 a gallon for gas at the tank. Um, but they don't count that in the core CPE because, you know, food and housing is, is uh, not important, I guess. People don't spend much money on that other than, you know, 70% of the average paycheck. Now, Leaving that aside, um, this is the range we've been in. We talked about last week, no particular place to go. It continued this week. And um, so we, we went through a lot of what we discussed here. This is the chart of the 10-year yield to 